Who is this SOB? Yeah, like who does he think he is? My thought exactly. Who is this SOB? Who is this SOB? Hey, this is Steve Noble, uber-conservative, Bible-thumping, Southern Baptist, syndicated talk radio show host, and I am that SOB. The one who has the nerve to take on some of the most popular podcasts in America when they are wrong, which is often, but much to the surprise of some of you, willing to admit when they are actually right, which happens from time to time. So maybe I won't be quite the SOB you expect me to be. Only time will tell. On today's SOB podcast... Joe Rogan has the number one podcast on the planet, but he recently ticked off a bunch of his loyal listeners by revealing one of the many benefits of being a rich Hollywood star. The girls at My Favorite Murder continue to make big bucks off of our societies and their own dark fascination with grisly murders. And Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, just can't help herself as a recent guest on the uber-popular New York Times podcast, The Daily. Hey, if you like what you hear today, or at least you're willing to give it another try, Please subscribe to the podcast, share it with your friends, and then be sure to visit me at whoisthissob.com, where you can leave your unfiltered opinion about the podcast or me personally, and maybe even find out where you're going when you die. Okay, let's jump right in. We'll start first with the Joe Rogan experience. Um, so please give a warm round of applause for Chris D'Elia. Joe Rogan Podcast, check it out! The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan podcast by night, all day. Crystal Lee is negative, yay! That's right. Okay, so on this podcast, uh, Joe's guest was Crystal Lee, who's an actor, writer, comedian, and uh, they got into it right away with, with a conversation about what's happening in Joe Rogan's studios. Uh, with response to with his response to the coronavirus situation, so this is uh, this is a glimpse into Joe Rogan, whose podcast last year Forbes reported he made about thirty million dollars. Okay, so he's making huge bank. He's been doing very well for years. Fascinating podcast started way back in two thousand and nine. He's way ahead of the game, and I enjoy listening to his podcast. I don't have that. I don't have the kind of time it takes to listen to his full podcast ad nauseum, on and on and on. Uh, but he, but he, uh, you know, he's a very interesting guy. He brings an interesting perspective. He's pretty even-handed in a lot of things. But he reveals something in this podcast about uh, life as a rich elitist in Hollywood, and they just have access to things, especially in the midst of the coronavirus situation, that the the vast majority of us don't. And so, hey, that's just uh, one of the benefits of having a one of the most popular, if not the most popular, most successful podcast on the planet. Uh, there's certain <laughs> benefits that come along with that level of success, but his 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 audience is not responding well. He's getting a lot of pushback, a lot of blowback, as if this should be a shock to anybody that when you're a rich, powerful person in Hollywood, you just play by a different set of rules. You have access to things that a lot of us simply don't have access to and uh, bring some things into question. So here's what happened during uh, episode 1458 on April 15th of this year. Crystal Lee is negative, yay! That's right. I got the test. Isn't it nice? You know, I got the test because I know Joe Rogan. Because I came here and uh, he had a doctor, a young, strapping doctor. He's handsome. Most importantly, he knows I'm negative. <sighs> I got t- I've got. i been tested twice already. Hmm. got tested yesterday and I got tested two days before that. So, and I'm just going to test myself every three or four <laughs> days. Fuck, Fuck it. it. Fuck it. So I'm testing everybody. So the, the way we're doing this here is when people come in to do the podcast, test them first, keep the fuck away from them, and then give them a hug. <laughs> I, I, you're the first person I've <laughs> hugged in a month. All right. So I, I, you know, I don't know Joe Rogan. I'll probably never meet Joe Rogan. Uh, I don't run in Joe Rogan circles. I'm just a little Christian talk radio show guy with a new podcast. But uh, the, the optics of this are horrible, obviously. And uh and maybe that's what happens. You get so high up there, you're in kind of a uh, ivory tower, and you're so far removed from regular life. This is why a lot of our politicians are so uh, egregious in the way they approach things and, and the way they think. They get so removed from regular life. And this is the danger. Uh, whether you're Joe Rogan or any other big giant star, they just get removed. And so we shouldn't be putting them on a pedestal. And Joe, I think, rightfully so, is getting hammered here. Whether he cares or not, I don't know. Uh, but here's like the New York Post. This is a couple of days la- later. Joe Rogan flaunts getting tested twice for coronavirus, angering fans. And then they explain what you just listened to. And uh, they go on to say this. In New York City, hospitals are days away from running out of COVID-19 tests. And city officials 
are sounding the alarm on the disparity between the wealthy's ability, i.e. Joe Rogan, to get tests and low-income folks' lack of access. Rogan's fans have been slammed, the UFC commentator and Fear Factor host, for bragging about his ability to get the tested for COVID-19. If you can't get a coronavirus test, it's because Joe Rogan hoarding all of them bitches. Good Lord, said one uh, person on Twitter. Huffington Post reporter Rebecca Klein tweeted that a doctor friend of hers couldn't even get tested. Quote, a close friend, a doctor, presumably had coronavirus but couldn't get tested in New York City. Cool that Joe Rogan is able to get te- to test his pals like it's nothing, she wrote, which is exactly what he sounded like on the air. It's like, hey, look, it's like the McDonald's drive-thru. I can test anybody I want. You want to get tested? Come be on the show. Others joke that the only way to get tested was to appear in his podcast. Quote, I don't need to talk to Joe Rogan. I just want a coronavirus test, wrote one person on Twitter. Quote, people like Joe Rogan bragging every day how him and his friends are being tested daily is just ridiculous, tweeted one person. Joe Rogan has had multiple coronavirus tests with negative result. What the hell, man? And on and on and on it goes. And so, hey, listen, <laughs> that's just uh, one of the benefits, apparently, of being a rich Hollywood elitist. And, and Joe Rogan doesn't look like a rich Hollywood elitist, but... He's rich, he's successful, he's influential, and apparently, if that's you, uh, you can get all the tests you want, even though regular folks have a hard time getting a test, even if they feel like garbage. So, wow, pretty amazing and pretty disappointing for the fans of the number one podcast on the planet. One more thing here, and then we'll move on. My friend Sturgill's positive. He tested positive. He went in with his wife, uh, and he good. thought his wife was sick, and it turns out he was. Wow. Yeah. But was he, he wasn't showing symptoms or what? He's a little fatigued. Yeah. Yeah, he like now he feels great. That's um, that's the thing about me is like I'll hear a thing and then be like, do I have a sore throat? Well, there's a thing on CNN today that said as many as seventy percent of the people, it's between fifty and seventy percent of the people that test positive feel nothing. Wow. So they're saying that way more people have this than they previously thought. Right. So the risk of hospitalization and or death, although it's still tragic and terrible, they're saying it's way lower than they thought, which is great. But at least this is like a dry run. Like now if something really bad happens, now at least... Look, I'm looking at it on the positive side. We know that we can get the country to lock down, basically. Not everybody, but that no... For, there's nothing, never going to yeah. be anything where everybody complies. No way. But pretty remarkable how many... I mean, just drive around here, man. It's Try wild, to get on the highway. Man. It's crazy. It's, I am legend out there. Okay, let's move on from the whole uh, I'm rich and I can get tested whenever I want to, which is troubling on a number of levels. And deservedly so. Joe Rogan's getting a lot of pushback on that. And, and hey, Joe, you deserve it. You shouldn't have been uh, uh, proudly displaying your uh, privileges. Talk about white privilege. You shouldn't proudly be displaying that. That's just bad optics on uh, on the show. But, you know, maybe he just doesn't care. He doesn't have to care, obviously. They made $30 million last year. But he does say a couple other things here that are really worth uh, talking about real quick. 50, 50 to 70% of the, of the people that test positive feel nothing. So here's the deal with the coronavirus is that we are, we are we are we have a very myopic view of it. We've got some information, we don't have all the information. Plus you've got a government, the feds, the state, the local government that now have to justify all these draconian measures. So they're going to present the narrative in the way that makes them look like the hero. So people like Trump can sit there and say, "Hey, I've I, no other US president has saved 2 million people. I have." And everybody else jumps on that bandwagon. Uh, and then of course everything's politicized, but but listen, now we're getting more information. Joe Rogan, I appreciate him bringing this up. So you get a, boat, a boatload of people that test positive that feel nothing, and then they create the antibodies, which means, and now you've got some other stories coming out that this thing was showing up in America probably in January. And so way more people have had it. Now they're saying even some some studies out of uh, California talking about Stanford studies saying, hey, we could be off by a factor of 30 to 80, meaning 30 times to 80 times more people have had it than what we're thinking as of this podcast today on April 22nd. It's about 800,000 people. Multiply that by 30 or 40 or 50. So, and I appreciate Rogan bringing this up. He goes, so uh, it's way lower. The numbers for serious illness, hospitalization, and death as a percentage are way lower than we've been told. So we've, we've brought an atom bomb to a knife fight as a country, and we were using a shotgun when we should have been using a laser. And I appreciate that Joe's looking at this. Is one of the things I like about Joe Rogan's podcast, he looks at both sides. He's willing to consider both sides. He's not an uber partisan most of the time. And that's awesome. But here's one that's one thing that's really troubling, that he was saying, hey, this is great. We're prepared in the future. Here's something positive uh, that we can get the whole country to lock down over something like this. 
hey, hey, Joe, you just admitted that the uh, new information is showing that that was a massive overreaction. And I actually don't think it's good in many ways that the country rolled over as easily as it did. So you've got the, and I'm a Christian speaking here, right? Bible thumper, follower of Jesus Christ, love your neighbor as yourself. Absolutely. Caring for your neighbor, caring for the elderly, caring for people that are particularly vulnerable to this virus uh, is, is a demand on me as a Christian. But that's not mutually exclusive to caring about everybody else, too. Because we've train wrecked our economy. As of today, 22 million on unemployment, uh, almost a million, pushing a million on unemployment in my home state here in North Carolina, where we have 10 and a half million people, and the devastation and the deaths by despair, suicide, anxiety, depression, everything, all the train wrecks, all the other dominoes that are going to fall after this. We have to care about that, too. And I don't think it's great that the country just rolled over, mostly out of fear for itself, and, and, uh, and yes, fear for our neighbors, that's built into the American experience now, whether you like it or not, that's part of our Judeo-Christian history. That's why when the crap hits the fan around the world, what's the first country to step up to the plate? It's us. It's America. Why? Because that's built into our DNA, loving your neighbor as yourself. Morality and religion is, is the two pillars on which this country was founded on. Again, whether you like it or not, it's true. Go study your history. Go see what the founding fathers themselves said. But... It does scare me that everybody, mostly based on self-interest and some based on the interest of your neighbors, especially older neighbors and vulnerable neighbors, that we just rolled over because the federal government told us to, that's very dangerous and that's not good for the direction of the company or the country company. Same difference in many ways. So we'll keep talking about that. We'll keep looking at other things. Joe Rogan getting hit and appropriately so. And if you uh, had your bubble burst about Joe Rogan, hey, just remember uh, most people, if you, if you made $30 million last year and you were worried about the coronavirus, you'd probably take advantage of your wealth too. Okay, let's move on to a really interesting podcast that I can't believe is still one of the most popular ones out there. And by the way, the gals at, uh, I call these, these shows Murder Me Shows, right? <laughs> My favorite murder, charming. Uh, last year, they were number two. Their podcast was number two on the earnings list. And so remember, and I'm a skeptic, right? That's why I'm on the radio. It's why I do podcasts like this. So I'm always kind of looking, what's behind all this stuff? So with our fascination of murder and their fascination of murder and grizzly murders, uh, they're the number two podcast earnings wise last year, 15 million bucks based on their fascination and our fascination, I would say kind of a sick and unhealthy fascination with grizzly murders. But yeah, we all gather around that trough and lop it up and they make 15 million bucks a year off of it. Unbelievable. Okay, let's talk about my favorite murder. Hello and welcome <laughs> to my favorite murder, the Zoom edition. <laughs> the Zoom or in lockdown. Okay, so their uh, Karen and Georgia, their first episode was all the way back in January of tw 2016. That's uh, four years ago, a little over four years ago. So they've been at it a while. And uh, they just, I mean, you listen to the very first episode and they just have this, I'd call it a fairly unhealthy, borderline sick fascination with grisly murders. And, and that, that, like, they were talking about, uh, you know, uh, some story of somebody torn in half and then being beheaded. And, and one of the gals was like, oh, well, that's fun. That sounds cool. And then they both admit they're terrified of of dying and especially dying in a way that's grisly or crazy or psycho. So it's just fascinating to me. When you look at the top 20 podcasts in America, uh, at least a third of them, sometimes a half of them are these murder stories, murder mysteries, murder stories. And, and I'm just trying to get my head around it. What's so fascinating? What, what's going on in the human spirit? What's what's part of our experience that we're so fascinated by murders? And then uh, one of the biggest complaints that uh, some of their fans, when you go look at their reviews and stuff, pr pretty much all the negative reviews that I looked at on My Favorite Murder, which is at their website, were about this kind of mindless banter for the first 30 minutes of the show. Most of these shows are an hour and a half. Their live shows are an hour and a half, roughly an hour and a half. And people are like, I, you know, I can't stand the first 30 minutes of mindless banter. And in the episode that I'm talking about, uh, Good Shabbos, uh, April 16th of 2020, that's the same thing. 
But I went all the way back the very first episode, January of 2016, and there was about 30 minutes of mindless banter. I went halfway through their episodes and looked at something uh, last year, and there was about 30 minutes of what I would call mindless banter, which is fascinating. So you've got this mindless banter between these two ladies that are obviously very good friends and have known each other for a while and share the same uh, <laughs> kind of weird fascination with murder stories. And then you've got their mindless, you've got the mindless banter part. And then you've got, they, they each share a story that they found. So they basically find murder mysteries, murder stories that uh, are true and that are fascinating to them for one reason or the other. And then they each share one of those stories and that's the show. So you got 30 minutes of mindless banter. Then you got about an hour as they unpack these shows, basically finding information and news stories and stuff. So what, what is it with that? Part of that's community. Isn't it interesting in the, in the digital age, where we're so connected digitally now with the COVID-19 stuff where we're having to have all this uh, six degrees of separation, six feet of separation, social distancing. I think people are just lonely. A lot of people are just lonely. They're disconnected. So when you hear two people, in this case, Karen and Georgia, who who obviously like each other, have are, have a great friendship, and uh, and you just get pulled into that. They're funny. They banter back and forth. Uh, you know, they're, they're reverend, a lot of F-bombs, whatever. Sometimes that offends people. Sometimes it doesn't. But but there's just that community there. And now you can look at their website and you can be a part of that community. Uh, the, you can go to the fan cult and you can buy stuff. You can buy gear. You just want to belong to something, which I think is as a Christian is part of the broken human spirit. We long to be loved, to be cared for, to be desired in some way. We long to feel like we have value and so if we don't have it in our own lives, we'll go jump in on somebody else. So this mindless banter and stuff of these two people that obviously like each other has worked for years. And like I said earlier, they they had the number two highest grossing podcast last year in 2019, $15 million. So capitalizing on murder and inviting people into your uh, good friendship uh, makes big money these days, which in a lot of different ways is sad. But what what's the deal with our fascination with murder? I mean, hey, I I like uh, violent movies. What's my problem? And I'm a Christ follower. I've been I've been a serious Christian for years. That doesn't mean I'm a perfect person. I'm far from it. But but what is that? What is that in the broken human nature that we're fascinated by? A movie. So it's one thing to go watch movies that are violent, and you know they're that it's hey you know relax. It's a movie, dude, or violent video games. Hey, relax. It's just a game. But to be fascinated by real life murders, and in this case, in this particular episode of my favorite murder. We're talking about some young people here, some a really young girl, like 13, 14 in the first story and two other girls who were kidnapped and raped, I think 12 and 14. And then in that case, they're still alive and we're laughing about it, making money off of it. So talk about a broken, screwed up society. Okay. So the first story they talk about Karen and Georgia in my favorite murder uh, is this young Italian girl. It's kind of a DNA story, which which reveals some other really screwed up stuff about human nature. So here's uh, here's their kind of take on that particular murder. Uh, all right. Well, I'm first then. Okay. This is a case from Italy, uh, from Northern Italy. And it's one of their big cases that was like, you know, really well known. And it became what they coined a genetic soap opera. So like, I think DNA heads are really into this case because it's, it's got some fascinating DNA elements. So mm. stick with me. This is the murder of Yara Gambarasio. So I got um, a couple great articles from The Guardian by Tobias Jones and another one by Rosie Scammell. Okay, so this was in northern Italy. Really sad story. This young girl, uh, Yara, was was brutally murdered, raped and murdered, and then uh, left for, you know, the body was left. And then they found it. And then they eventually started working with DNA evidence. And the DNA evidence started to unlock all these doors. Which was fascinating. So there's an application here for me as a Christian. That's why I'm going in this direction from this particular episode of My Favorite Murder. Then we're going to talk about this other one, which I think was really disturbing and sick and and uh, disappointing that uh, apparently Karen and Georgia have no problem talking about these things. And people obviously listen. I mean, this what the heck? Okay, so this DNA thing, they figure out that the, the, the they get a DNA sample and then they start figuring out family trees and then starts to reveal in this one Italian community all these illicit affairs and children that uh, the mom had an affair with this other guy. And so there's DNA connections here, but the dad isn't the, the, the dad isn't the one she's married to. And what, I mean, this happens like a, like an avalanche of DNA revelations, which is fascinating. And all these illicit re relationships and these resulting pregnancies, which, Hey, you know what? 
at least these people over there had the guts and the moral tenacity to keep the babies. Most people, especially here in America and around the world, 40 million abortions a year. Did you know that? 40 million a year around the world. Most people would be like, oh yeah, that's too embarrassing. I don't, I don't need that in my life. And then just discard the baby, genetically distinct human being at conception, by the way, unless you're a science denier, and then just get it out of the way because then I'm caught, right? None of us want to be caught in our illicit activity. But in this case, it was just fascinating. I'm just sitting there going, wow, oh, well, what a bummer. One murder leads to all this information, DNA evidence, hard evidence of all these illicit affairs, which just adds another level of our fascination. You go, wow, how about that? Ooh, Kyle, that's crazy. But man, the, the humanity is broken, y'all. I'm talking like a Southerner. Humanity is broken and dark. The fact that all that stuff happens in these small communities, people sleeping around, having babies out of wedlock, blah, 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 blah. And then the fact that the number two highest grossing podcast in America talks about it all the time, and especially the grisly murder part. What's up with that? What's wrong with us? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with you? that were fascinated by this stuff. Okay, then they jumped into this other story, which is really dark, about these two young aspiring models, a 14-year-old and a 12-year-old, and uh, they were with these older ladies. They thought they were going to a shoot. They thought they were going to a job uh, opportunity, but man, it went south and it went dark. Several things to talk about here, but this is when they first get into the story out of uh, Utah. And it was all about this psycho guy who was posing as somebody running a video shoot and a modeling thing, and he meets these people out somewhere. And these older ladies who are basically the chaperones, experienced women, this is back in the 1980s, who experienced women in that business who should have known better, but they meet him and uh, he's, he's not exactly professional looking. They follow him. He says he's got a place for the girls to change into the clothes for the shoot. And they, they follow him and they end up at like a double wide kind of camper thing. And it all goes horribly wrong from there he smells and is sweaty and is like it's a bummer he um directs mabs to the tahoe verde trailer park and to one of the double wides he has her park in the carport he walks them into the trailer he points to the room where he says the girls can change um into their shoot wardrobe once they're in that room they see that it the dressing room is actually a bedroom that's been soundproofed with plywood and carpeting so how incredibly oh, creepy that feeling would be that moment where your stomach drops and you're like this is a mis this was a mistake and hey as as uh karen and georgia unpack these stories they have the right response in many ways you know oh how horrible oh my god da, 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 you know they, they react very emotional reacting as they should and that's the right reaction horror brokenness yet we, we stay at the table and continue to dine on these details, talking about the rape, the kidnapping and rape and an almost eventual murder of a 14 and a 12-year-old girl. Just stop and think about that for a second, that we pull our chairs up to the table and dine on this stuff and, and compensate people like Karen and Georgia handsomely for talking about it once or twice a week for years. So again, I, I'm not trying to impugn the character of Karen and Georgia. I, don't, I do not know these ladies. I probably never will know these ladies. I can't judge the intent of their hearts. I know that uh, some of the complaints from their audience is that they tend to denigrate religion and whatever. That's nothing new to somebody like me. And uh, lost people, broken people, people outside of a reconciled relationship with their creator uh, act like lost people, act like, act like broken people. I mean, I, don't, I did too before I became a born-again Christian. The Bible even says, such were some of you after this long list of all these horrific behaviors. And so I'm not uh, I, I'm not casting dispersion or judgment on their hearts or their motivations. I, I can't judge that for myself. But the fact that they're fascinated by it and enough people are fascinated by the same things and pull up the table to the same wicked, nasty, gross meal, it just breaks my heart that we're like this as a society. And I can guarantee you, it breaks God's heart too. So then they get into kind of some of the other details uh, that just continue to uh, take us down this road of human depravity. Because what happens is when they're standing there looking before anyone can do anything or ask a question or say anything, 
Herb just punches Elisa. He cold cocks her in the face Fuck. and basically drops her. <gasps> and immediately it, it's on. Like immediately he turns and starts beating these old women. Oh. They're on the ground almost immediately. Fuck. He then zip ties. Um, he he ties up Alicia and Monica, covers their heads with their jackets. So he basically so they can't see what he's about to do. But Alicia can she's only partially covered. So she sees everything. Oh, no. And essentially mark ties up um mab's arms and legs and then he cinches an electrical cord zip tie around her neck and she's pleading for him saying it's too tight i can't breathe and he's basically strangling her um so she soon very soon slumps over and then he moves on to Dottie, who's now begging for her life and oh these girls witness all of this God. um he then proceeds to strangle Dottie with the zip tie as well then he wraps Okay, did it work? Did it pull you in? Were you leaning in closer? Were you fascinated? They obviously were, and she was having, you know, dropping her F-bombs and having the right reaction to how sick and twisted it is. But again, that's that, I mean, that's why I let the clip play. Because it just, hey, I'm just, I'm just holding the mirror up to all of us. Lean in and dining on this stuff. And you have to stop and go, okay, what am I doing and why am I doing it? The Bible talks about King David in the Old Testament. Okay, David, as in David and Goliath, talked about after he had been busted for, he uh, took Bathsheba, essentially raped her. And, and if you want to, you can easily define it that way. He took advantage of his position and, and took this woman. She gets pregnant. He tries to get the husband to sleep with her so that it'll look like he created the baby. Obviously, that doesn't work. And then he sends him back to the battle lines uh, and give, gives an order to the guy's boss to, hey, put put this guy out in front and pull the troops back and then he'll die. And then my, my crime will all be covered up. So eventually, David, who is a major scumbag there, but David, a man after God's own heart. So that's the interesting thing about being a Christian is you can do some horrible things and do some things wrong. And But you got to be continuing to pursue God and you go, OK, I realize I'm such a dirtbag. Lord, help me, help me to be a better person. I don't want to be this person anymore. And so David talks about, you know, oh, search my heart, Lord, and reveal in me any unclean and wicked things. He was willing to look in the mirror. So with a podcast like My Favorite Murder, is anybody look anybody looking in the mirror? I'm looking in the mirror and I, and I don't necessarily like what I see. And it makes me think harder about, well, why do I dine on this stuff? Why do I go watch violent movies? And I'm a Christian for goodness sakes. So what's up with that? It's part of the brokenness of mankind that we're fascinated by the, the harm, the abuse, the murder, the rape, the murder of people, even, even old women, young girls, man. And you wonder why we need a savior. You wonder why Jesus came to the earth. Take a look around. It's not pretty. Okay, one more part, and then we'll finish up, and then we'll move on to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Then puts the girls back into the carpeted room and puts pillowcases over their heads. Um, and this is a trigger warning for anyone. This is a very disturbing part of this story. The girls ask him if he's going to rape them, and he says no. He's actually, j they're just going to do a video shoot with a boy their age. Um, then he goes out to the living room and begins talking in two different voices, oh, a God. deep voice like he's the director and then a high voice like he's the boy and the girls can't see because there's a pillowcase on their heads. And then he comes back into the room pretending to be the boy. Karen, this is the most terrifying story I've ever heard in my life. Isn't it horrible? It's like I was yeah. thinking in the beginning, it was like Silence of the Lambs when she goes in and. Okay, so obviously deeply, deeply disturbing. They did turn a, a good corner after this, and I commend them for bringing up and, and focusing on this part of the story, that all this stuff, the kidnapping, the murder, the rape, and then eventually catching this guy, it all happened within like four days. So the authorities in Utah, out, outside of Salt Lake City, uh, other citizens, people just got on this and got on it fast. And within four days, they caught the guy. Of course, he was claiming uh, to be insane, yada, yada, yada. But at least that part was uplifting that the community and law enforcement got on top of it fast. But but again, I'm going to go back to the main point. The fact that uh, Karen and Georgia have, have made lots of money appealing to our baser nature that we're fascinated by murder stories and murder. We're looking for communities so we don't mind 30 minutes of mindless banter before we get to all these brutal murder stories and rape stories and kids and old ladies. And man, 
on one hand, as a business person, I'm like, hey, you tapped into something. You realize just how dark and screwed up human nature can be, and you tapped into it, and you're making a ton of cash because of it. The other side of me, the Christian side of me is like, how sad, how sad. So again, I'm not gonna judge the hearts of Karen and Georgia. I don't know these women. I know they reject Christianity, they reject Christ, all that kind of stuff, that's not abnormal. So this is less about them and more about us and our sick fascination that we pull up to the table and dine on rape and murder. So like King David, we all need to take a look in the mirror and hopefully we'll be honest about what we see. Okay, let's move on to our third and final act of today's Who Is This SOB podcast. It's the Times, the, the New York Times podcast, very, very popular, The Daily, with the host Michael Barbaro, who's got this strangely soothing and attractive, almost magnetic voice. Very well produced. It's an excellent podcast. I, I disagree with their points. Most of the time, very liberal, obviously. It's the New York Times. You know what? The sun rises in the east and sets in the west, and the New York Times is uber liberal. Okay. Uh, but I enjoy listening to the podcast. I really appreciate their production quality. And and usually they, they, I mean, for the New York Times, sometimes I'm like, wow, well, that's refreshingly even-handed. Uh, not that often, but it does happen. So in this case, he's talking to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who's, by the way, the most, uh, is, the, is the youngest member of the House of Representatives in the Congress. Uh, uh, hats off to her on that one. Uh, props for winning at such a young age. But He's talking to her about COVID-19 and its impact on her congressional district, which is right there in New York, uh, one of the hardest hit in the country. A very worthy conversation, but she just can't help herself. She has to go to identity politics. She has to play all the typical cards for a liberal politician, uh, which takes away from the real crux of what I think the interview could have been, which is all about the real effect on real people in a really tough place to live in this particular borough of New York City. But she just couldn't help herself. So here we go with Michael Barbaro in The Daily and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. From The New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. This is The Daily. Today, her mentor and political inspiration has dropped out of the presidential race, and her congressional district has been described as the epicenter of the epicenter of the coronavirus. All right, so I came into this one hoping that it was going to be kind of set politics aside, talk about her disappointment and Bernie Sanders not uh, being able to complete this route, to complete this track to get the Democratic nomination. And obviously that's kind of a mentor. He's kind of a mentor of hers and, and really is a predecessor to where she's at now with her agenda and her particular view on politics. And then especially I was, I was looking forward to her talking about, Hey, set again, set the politics aside. Let's just talk about what's happening there in your district in New York city, the hardest hit place in America by coronavirus, all kinds of uh, challenges there and horrible stories and heartbreak and things that we need to be aware of because most of us don't live there. Most of us don't have that kind of experience with the coronavirus. So I would say, praise the Lord for that. And pray for the people in New York, but uh, but it just it's just it's just the world we live in now, especially here in America. And you just have to go political, you just have to go to identity politics, and go down all those roads. And uh, and so let's just jump jump into the first clip here when uh, they start to talk about what's happening there in New York City. And how is the pandemic impacting those constituents in your district? Out of the top 10 zip codes in the United States that are impacted by COVID casualties, the top five are in my district with the top three. Wow. Yeah, with the top three being all in our district as well. In New York City, about 65% of all frontline workers are people of color. So mm -hmm. the folks who are stocking our grocery stores, the folks who are acting as our home health aides that are visiting our elderly parents and the disabled, the folks who, you know, are working in our hospitals. They are the people who are disproportionately impacted. Are you saying that the reason they are getting so sick, your constituents, is because they're disproportionately being asked to go into work in the midst of this? Oh, absolutely. Because this pandemic is not happening in a vacuum. It's happening in a social and economic context. Okay, she, she starts out, that's just heartbreaking. Uh, three of the top 10 uh, worst places in America 
districts, zip codes. I'm not sure exactly what metric she was using, but three of the top 10, five of the top 10, all in her district. I mean, that's horrific and terrible and heartbreaking. And, and that's a human story. That's not a political story. That's a human story. But she turns it into a political story. So on, on the right, Trump does this stuff. Republicans do this stuff. Democrats do this stuff. They politicize everything. And largely, we follow in lockstep, right? I polit- I tend to over-politicize things and, and go, hey, just can't we just, goodness gracious, set that down for a second. Let's just talk about the human toll here and the things that are going on so that we can try to assist one another, try to be decent neighbors, setting politics aside. But she just can't stop. She just can't stop herself, I guess. I mean, that's pretty obvious. You'll hear this in other clips. But Uh, saying that these are folks who are disproportionately affected. They deliver your groceries. They work in the front line. And so setting up, she sounds like these are people that uh, have been grabbed and then corralled and then sent to the front lines of the fight against COVID-19. And they're people of color and minorities and and a lot of immigrants and a lot of uh, illegal immigrants. Like we went and gathered them up in some devious plan and said, now we're going to put these people on the front lines. And then Michael Barbaro, and, and I appreciated him doing this. He's like, are you saying that they've been disproportionately asked to go into work? And she's like, oh, absolutely. I mean, that's anecdotal at best in terms of making that assertion. If 85% of the constituents in that area are minorities, people of color, immigrants, and I would expect to see most of those local jobs would reflect that. Now, you're going to have educational differences and most of the doctors and, and finance people, whatever, whatever part of town she's talking about. But in terms of the people that have kind of regular jobs like most of us, they're going to reflect that area. And so she's acting like they've been targeted. They're not. If I go to a, a largely African-American part of any city and I go in to kind of look at the regular jobs in that area, I'm going to see a lot of, guess what, African-Americans. Have they been targeted there? Are they disproportionately being uh, asked and forced to go serve in the dangerous front lines in the fight against COVID-19? It's just a radical assertion that immediately brings in identity politics and immediately decreases just the brokenness of the situation and the heartbreak of the situation. That, man, it stinks that we've got so many people. I mean, COVID-19 in the urban centers is disproportionately affecting minorities because our urban centers are disproportionately made up of minorities. That's terrible. And there's other things about heart rate, I mean, heart disease and, and the overall health of the minority population, especially in an urban center, which has all kinds of problems and challenges and heartbreak. But immediately to go to that, oh, yeah, they're absolutely they're being targeted. Yeah. The, the evil white Republicans are grabbing as many uh, Democrat minorities as they can and throwing them at the coronavirus. That's the way she plays it. And uh, give it a break, AOC. Can't these politicians, AOC in this case, set it aside just for a second? Goodness gracious. Okay, let's move on to the next clip where she she brings, talking about immigrants, immigration. She's got to bring ICE into it and go after ICE. And, and there's some factual issues here with what she says. And I'll address that when we come back. Here's the next clip talking about ICE's activities in the midst of the coronavirus situation. All this is going on. We have ICE raids that are happening where wow. ICE officers are knocking on people's doors while other people are knocking on their door to deliver goods from food pantries. So which knock do you answer? Right, right. You know, ICE doesn't always present themselves as clearly marked as they should. And so sometimes these officers are in plain clothes. And, you know, when you have a stranger knocking on your door, I've, I've been doing the deliveries myself as well. And mm-hmm. I would knock on people's doors and people were extremely scared about who I was and everyone's wearing a face mask. So mm-hmm. it's, it's hard to tell at first, you know, it's, it's an extraordinary amount of uncertainty. And by the way, these are the people who are delivering our food. These are the people who are delivering your food to your door, who don't have healthcare, don't have access to testing and uh, are extremely vulnerable. Okay, so let's uh, let's deal with these ICE raids that she's talking about and saying, that, you know, ICE is showing up there. Uh, you don't know who's knocking on your door. And Michael Barbaro at this point is like, wow, so so which, which knock do you answer? Because these terrible ICE agents are out here scaring the crap out of people. 
And uh, what a terrible time to be doing that when all these people, these are the people, like AOC said, that are delivering food to your door, so on and so forth. So let's, that sounds terrible, doesn't it? And she does a great job of setting it up. Here comes the big bad guys at ICE paying no attention to the fact that people are, are afraid. And so let's take advantage of the situation that people are hiding at home and let's go grab as many illegal aliens as we can because that's what uh, overlord Donald Trump wants to do because he hates Mexicans, right? All that kind of stuff, all that kind of talk. However, you have to stop and go, okay, hold on a second. What's really happening here? Am I just going to take AOC at her word or Donald Trump? Any Republican, any Democrat? No. So I, I went and did a little research to see what's going on. Is ICE still conducting uh, investigations and raids in New York City? Yes, they are. But are they doing it regularly? And according to their regular ways, I mean, anybody. No, and ICE generally is going after dangerous criminals. They're not going after... They don't have time to go after because we're talking about, you know, probably 15 million people. So they have to focus their efforts on people that are actual criminals, very dangerous. So they said, they even said this came out on uh, March 18th, well before the recording of this particular podcast uh, of The Daily. Uh, to ensure the welfare and safety of the general public, as well as officers and agents in light of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic response, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, will temporarily adjust its enforcement posture beginning today, March 18th. The highest priorities are to promote life-saving and public safety activities. ICE enforcement and removal operations will focus enforcement on public safety risks and individuals subject to mandatory detention based on criminal grounds. So oh, what type of people are we talking about here? Is it the average immigrant? No. These are very dangerous people. And so they go on to explain this. And this is what they've been doing. They adjusted their operations to focus even more on the most dangerous uh, illegal immigrants who are who are criminals, like nasty people, whether they're immigrants or not. These are just nasty, scary, dangerous people. Homeland Security investigations will continue to carry out mission critical criminal investigations and enforcement operations as determined necessary to maintain public safety and national security. Examples include investigations into, now you tell me, do you think ICE should suspend going after illegal immigrants who fit this cat, these categories, that we should just let these people go? And don't do, do anything about it because, you know, we don't want them to get sick. These are people, including investigations into child exploitation, gangs, narcotics trafficking, human trafficking, human smuggling, and, and continued participation in the Joint Terrorism Task Force. So anybody that might be associated with terrorism. So they're talking about we're going to continue when we can to go after and detain and deport really dangerous criminals who happen to be illegal immigrants. And that's who they're going after. And and then she talks about, hey, they're not always clearly marked. Well, <laughs> I don't want ICE agents to be clearly marked when they're showing up in a in a public environment trying to catch one of these terrible criminals and get them out of here. I want them to be covert. It's like, hey, AOC, should we not have undercover police officers? Should we not have unmarked police cars? They're, they exist for a reason. So you don't know they're there. So criminals can more easily be caught, apprehended, apprehended and dealt with. And so this is just, again, ISIS horrific, ISIS horrible. Uh, Donald Trump and all the Republicans just want to put Mexican children in cages and don't care. This coming from people that don't care that we execute 16,500 babies a week in the womb. So I don't really take moral lectures very well from pro-choice people. Because the science is in, the morality is in, the ethical considerations are in. And, and you just can't, unless you're a science denier, you can't make a case for abortion. They didn't understand that in 1973 in Roe versus Wade, but we sure darn understand it today. So she just goes down this road, just throwing ice under the, under the, under the train and just making all these assertions. And it sure, it tugs at your heartstrings. It makes you mad. I can't believe they're doing this to people that are hunkered down, especially the people that are delivering my groceries. Well, if your grocery delivery person is also dealing in se child sexual exploitation and child sex trafficking, uh, do you want them to be picked up or do you not? I do. So, hey, ICE, go get them. So I just, it just frustrates me because she had to politicize it, right? She just can't help herself. Okay, let's, uh, let's deal with this next clip. And in this one, um, Michael Barbaro brings up the host of uh, The Daily. Again, that's a New York Times podcast. Really, really well done. He's an excellent host. And there's a lot of, about the podcast I, I like and enjoy. And uh, mostly, I don't agree with it. Obviously, I'm very conservative, very liberal. But I think most of the time, they're pretty even-handed. It's not completely over the top. But in this case, he's talking to AOC about 
uh, kind of the aid packages that were being passed. And then some of these things that she says, I agree. And some things I vehemently disagree. And this is where we have to be willing to, and, and am I willing to, are you willing to kind of listen to both sides of an issue instead of just assuming and just taking dig, you get in your trench, I'll get in my trench. And so we don't have any conversation. We don't work through anything anymore. We just divide. And and there is a time to divide on certain issues. Hey, I, I can't agree with you. You can't agree with me. Okay, we can't uh, we can't come to any kind of an agreement here. We're at an impasse. Let's agree to disagree, whatever. But she they get into this, and so I'll I'll play the clip for you, and then we'll do a little analysis where I some things I agree with, and some things I don't. Okay, here we go. You stood up on the floor of the house, and you called that bill shameful. And my understanding is that you withheld your support for it. So help me understand that. Yeah, because um, you know. It wasn't designed to help working people. This bill was not designed to help everyday families. It was designed to engineer one of the largest corporate bailouts and giveaways in modern American history. And it used the desperation of working families in order to get that done. Okay, this is where where both sides tend to do this is they'll they'll take a bill, they'll take a measure, and they'll only focus on certain aspects of it and leave other things out that are inconvenient. Thank you, Al Gore, an inconvenient truth because it doesn't help your case. So there are some things that I would agree with. There's some really big corporate bailouts for publicly held companies that can raise money. And there's been some of the companies just in recent history, like Shake Shack, that gave back $10 million because they went and raised $120 million in private equity. So there's, there's some big companies out there that can raise money on their own and don't need a bailout from the government. And there's, there's all kinds of abuse there that we found out about, and including uh, uber liberal bastions like Harvard. Harvard took eight or $9 million for payroll assistance. And did you know Harvard's got uh, the biggest endowment in America, probably the biggest endowment on the planet. They've got $40.9 billion with a B, billion dollars in an endowment. And they even they even uh, laid off some contract workers, people working their cafeterias and stuff because of the COVID-19 shutdown of the university and stuff like that. They've got forty point nine billion dollars. Are you kidding me? They shouldn't have any access to any government funding, which, by the way, is your money and my money. No way. They shouldn't have any. And there's some big corporations that shouldn't have any. OK, I'm with you there, AOC. But then she leaves out. She's saying it's the engineered the largest corporate bailout giveaway in U.S. history using desperation to get it done. But she leaves out the other things that were good about it. <clears throat> so there's direct payments to individuals. By the way, did you get your check yet? I didn't. $1,200 for an individual, $2,400 if you're if you're a married couple. Uh, and then it phases out. So if you make adjusted gross income above 99 grand, uh, you're not getting anything. So that's means testing and that's good. Student loan payments were suspended. There was a historic boost for unemployment benefits, which really affects people in AOC's district, especially where people range from, uh, it, it goes up to 600, an extra $600 a week for four months, an extra $600 a week on top of regular unemployment benefits. So people get a, get a modest and some people get a hefty raise and, and great to help them out because now they're on, all of a sudden unemployed. That's great. She didn't mention that because it doesn't help her case. Uh, a lending program. Now, this is uh, there's the big uh, payroll lending program. So all these people, including her constituents that work for small businesses and the small businesses have to close and now they can't afford payroll. Well, there's a, this is like a 1% interest loan from the government. And I'm not even going to talk about all the trillions of debt that we're adding on. But, but that's giving money to employers so that they can continue to pay their employees and keep pay, pay employees on the payroll. That I guarantee you that helps people in her, her district. But she doesn't mention that. By the way, Trump businesses couldn't get a dime. They put that in there. There's no money for any Trump business. And that, that was smart. I agree with that. Tons of money for airlines and airports. $32 billion in grants for wages and benefits to the decimated airline industry because the government decimated them by shutting them down, which is a totally different conversation. But do you know how many people those the airline industries employ? Okay, the pilots make big money. The corporate people make big money. Not every pilot makes big money, but most of them do. But you go all the way down to the people throwing bags and working on the front line and working in the back lines, regular people, hardworking, blue collar people, and they need assistance. Well, sometimes you give the assistance through their employer, but she throws that out wholesale. Hospitals. Hospitals got uh, $117 billion for hospitals. 
Contractors and gig workers, people on the side, they even got uh, included in this. Protection against foreclosures and evictions. This was ridiculous. They got rid of this. $25 million for the, for the Kennedy Center. For the Kennedy Center. What? What? For the Performing Arts Center. I mean, okay, set that aside. Uh, the bill provides $450 million for the Emergency Food Assistance Program, which I guarantee you helps people in AOC's district. But she didn't mention that. And then evacuation of Americans, $324 million to the State Department to get Americans back home who are overseas. Even the Peace Corps got money. Now, yes, there's some, and there's another clip. Yeah, there's some, there's some greed here. So there's some misallocation. There's some companies getting it that shouldn't be getting it at all because they can raise their own money. But there's a whole lot of other people that would be in her categories that would be uh, Democrats, that would be lower income, would be uh, immigrant families, that are being helped. But no, we can't mention that because that doesn't help our narrative. It's narrative over everything. It should be the truth over everything, which includes both sides. But as politicized as AOC is, and most of them are, she just can't help herself. Okay, let's move on. This next clip is really interesting because I think Mike, Michael, Barbaro, Michael Barbaro, excuse me, the host of The Daily, uh, the New York Times podcast that we're talking about, I think is trying to help her out. You decide for yourself, but this is what it sounds like to me because he, he wants to make sure, it sounds like he wants to make sure that, hey, you're not throwing out the baby with the bathwater here, are you? So I just hear it for yourself and we'll see what you think because it sounds like he's kind of leading the witness trying to help her out because he's realizing she's digging herself a little hole that she just condemns the whole thing. Uh, but then he but then he comes back and asks her a question, a good question about, well, hold on a second, you know, shouldn't we be, isn't it okay that they help some corporations? Because, you know, corporations employ people and at various levels. And even somebody that works at a local uh, blue collar job, there's probably a corporation above them at some level. And so you need to keep the corporation afloat or the jobs go away. And we're going to, that's one of the many dominoes we're going to see fall as a result of our nation's reaction to the coronavirus pandemic is there's all kinds of, listen, we just had another jobs report came out this morning as I'm recording this. Another four and a half million people, that's 26 million people have filed for unemployment in four weeks. 26 million. This hasn't happened since the Great Depression. And companies are on top of the 26 million that had jobs. So if you want to help them, you got to help the people at the bottom, the, the actual employees, but you also got to try to keep these businesses afloat so that as things open back up, they have a job again. Hopefully that makes sense to you. This is like basic business, basic economics 101. So again, she's throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Listen for yourself. I think I think Michael's trying to help her out here a little bit, but then he comes back and hits her with a great question. But but you're not saying that to take one of the measures, that $600 a week in enhanced unemployment benefits, you're not saying that that wasn't designed to protect American families, right? But it sounds like you take issue with other elements of the bill that also protect large corporations. And in order for the American economy to recover from this, don't those corporations also need government assistance so that they can survive and employ people? Okay. Is it just me? Am I just overwhelmed by my skepticism? Uh, so he's talking about the $600 a week. You're not saying that that wasn't designed to help American families, right? Like, hey, I can imagine him if they were in the same room because they weren't because they were social distancing and you could tell she's on Skype or whatever. And you could just, I would imagine if they were in the same room, he'd be like nodding his head up and up and down like I am right now. You're not saying that the $600 a week wasn't uh, designed to help American families, right? And nodding your head. Yes, yes, yes. He's trying to say, well, of, of course. <laughs> well, no, no, of course not. Because what he's saying, he's putting her in a situation where like, you're not saying that it's wrong to help American families with this pretty healthy, pretty generous $600 extra per week uh, in unemployment. You're not saying that, right? <laughs> see, see what happened there? So I don't know. Nobody's purely objective. Okay. I'm not. I am here with an agenda. There's no question about it. My agenda, my worldview is Christian, conservative. My agenda is to engage you, to have a conversation, to offer another perspective on these very popular podcasts and these opinions and these subjects and to have a dialogue and maybe uh, maybe you move a little, I move a little. I think that's good for all of us to think more readily and more heartily about these issues and about these positions. I think that's healthy. We don't do that very much. We just, I, we're dogmatic. We decide that's it. I have no interest. You're an idiot. You're a whack job, stinking freaking liberal, whatever, or stupid backwoods Christian, whatever. And we just dismiss each other. And, and I'm not saying I'm not compromising one bit on what I believe to be true. 
But I think we can compromise on how we talk to each other and how we treat each other and try to actually have a dialogue where we can actually both maybe learn something or at least have our hearts softened towards each other, have a little more empathy and uh, and have an, a more uh, loving, kind society. And I don't think that's such a bad goal, is it? And then he turns around and then he hits her with a great question, which was, hey, listen, like the point I just made. Way to go, Michael. So, of course, you need to help corporations, too, because they, you know, employ people. And so that that was good. On one hand, I think he's, he's going out of his way to help her. But then he comes back, reels it in and asks her a great, just good journalistic question. Uh, hats off to you, Michael. Great job. And that first part, what? <laughs> I don't know. It sounded fishy to me. Okay, let's keep going. We're almost done. In this clip, Michael's continuing the conversation and gets into the unemployment assistance, but also talks about the billions. And then she brings up something that that I want definitely want to touch on before we're done, which is the $4 trillion being uh, put into Wall Street, into the financial system. And, and that one cuts deep across both sides. And again, she's highly politicized here. Listen, she's a member of Congress, but but there's some, there's some jinx in her armor as well. So let's just listen to this exchange, then we'll talk about it, and then we'll finish up. These big multi-billion dollar companies do not need this kind of assistance to survive. They just don't. And it's always rugged, as Martin Luther King said, rugged capitalism for the poor and unfettered, you know, endless socialism for the rich in that, you know, if you're an everyday person and you are on the brink of eviction really what we kind of tell you is we just shrug our shoulders and say, you know, better luck next time. But the $600 a week for out-of-work Americans, the reports are that for many people, especially many working-class Americans, that was actually a form of a raise, a modest raise. And so that would seem to be something that would be very much in, in your interest. Oh, yes. No, absolutely. And, and, and to be clear, I'm not criticizing the expansion of unemployment benefits. And in, in fact, I think that's probably the most or one of the most redeeming aspects of the bill. That's ultimately what I'm talking about, is that this administration held that hostage so that it could leverage $4 trillion for mm. Wall Street. Okay, so first of all, she talks about, you know, these multi-billion dollar companies don't need government assistance to survive. They just don't. <laughs> okay, agree. Uh, you have an opinion about it. That's awesome. You're welcome to have an opinion about it. But saying they just don't is a little empty intellectually, right? Now, let's let's be honest here. That AOC has a college degree, she was a waitress. She's a bartender. She goes after it for to be a member of the house. She was an activist and she gets in. That's awesome. She doesn't have an armored Harvard MBA. She doesn't have an economics major. She's not a business major. She doesn't have much of a business background at all. And yet she knows that billion dollar corporations do not need any kind of government help in the midst of this crazy environment we're in by definition, because they're billion dollar companies. Well, the problem we have wholesale all the way across from billion dollar companies to families that make $250,000 a year, to families that make $70,000 a year. We have an entire system built on uncontrolled debt. And so, yes, there are billion dollar companies that are over leveraged and they're hosed right now unless they get a bailout. Just like back in the day with Obama in 2008 when they bailed out this, that, and the other thing and actually took over GM because we couldn't let them fail. We don't want anything. The government's not interested in letting anybody fail. I mean, they just don't because everything's so politicized. And that's a whole nother subject, what happened in 2008. But we're back to that environment now and worse. But to just say they just don't appeals to her constituency, appeals to people that just generally hate corporate America. And I'm not saying there aren't some things to be troubled with corporate America because there is and there are and there always has been. Why? Because they're made up of people and people can be dirtbags, sin nature, fallenness, depravity of mankind. But, but she, she's talking as if she knows completely and she doesn't. And unfortunately, we have a system where if you don't help some of these billion-dollar corporations, there's going to be even more crap that hits the fan and even more of her constituents that are unemployed. So then she comes back and she, you got to give her, you know, give, give you your props, AOC. Thanks for acknowledging the $600 a week extra unemployment thing. That's great. That's good. 
she does that. That's excellent uh, to be commended, uh, to, to, to appreciate that and say it openly on a really popular podcast. That's great because she kind of was clarifying her position. Michael was helping her out there. Then she comes back and talks about, and we'll finish with this, this the $4 trillion to Wall Street. Okay, so now let's hyperbole, names, generalization, Wall Street. So all of Wall Street is evil, spawn of Satan. Screw you, regular people. It's all about the billionaires. And in some ways, that's true. Now, here's the overriding problem that everybody in D.C. is guilty of and everybody on Wall Street is guilty of. We have our entire house, our entire financial house is built on sand. So now we have a storm come along. This is right out of the Bible. You have a storm come along and the winds blow and howl and the rain comes and the house gets knocked over. So we have an entire nation and a corporate structure largely based on debt. And by the way, you may not, you may not, you, this may sound a, a little too close to home for you. The average American family isn't ready for a thousand dollar car repair. They couldn't pay for it. We've got tons of college debt. We've got tons of credit card debt. We don't look much better as individuals and families than the federal government does. The whole thing's screwed up. Both sides and everybody in DC is guilty on this. We're at 24 trillion and climbing. The, they just came out with a revised estimate. This year's federal budget, uh, the original projection was a billion a trillion dollar deficit. Now it's gonna be a $4 trillion deficit. Our budget, our total budget, federal budget's only like 4.3 trillion. And we're gonna double that because of this mess we're in. And so, yes, unfortunately, to keep the uh, drug addict alive, you have to continue to pump drugs into it. But the whole system is like that. So she demonizes Wall Street. And in many ways, I understand that. I agree with it in many ways because they've built a system that has to be propped up by the Federal Reserve and by the federal government pumping money into the system because we've all grabbed shovels and dug this hole in the way we live our individual lives and in the way corporations take on debt and the way our government spends money like a drunken sailor on crack or whatever. And whether it's Obama or Trump, they all do it. They're all guilty. And how do we get out of this? I do not know because the numbers just don't work and they're only getting worse. But the whole system's propped up on debt. And so we just don't have any restraints. So for me as a Christian, I just go, well, of course not. We don't wanna deny ourselves anything. We're fleshly people. We're sinful, we're selfish, we don't want to sacrifice largely. There's greed, there's avarice. That's all brokenness. The brokenness of mankind shows up in the bedroom, it shows up in the in the boardroom, it shows up in the halls of Congress, it shows up in a small business, it shows up in your family and mine, it shows up in our relationships. So many things are screwed up. And, and my heart grieves over this, but my heart doesn't grieve nearly as much as God's, who created all of us and loves us. But he gives us a free will. You, you, you can't, if you're a parent, you, you can only control your kids so much and then they have a free will and you love them and you you plead with them, right? If you're a parent, please don't do this. You're going to destroy your life. You're going to harm yourself or somebody else. Please, please, please. But they have a they have a free will. Otherwise they'd be robots and then you couldn't love anybody. There wouldn't be any love that would exist. So now I'm back to a Christian perspective and a biblical worldview and just see all this brokenness and how we built a house on, our, on sand. And now the winds have come and it's exposing just how weak our house is. So we need to hold all of our elected officials accountable, whether it's AOC, Pelosi, Mitch McConnell, state and local, the president, whoever. But I blame all of Washington, D.C. for this debt structure and all of America, most of us, for how we choose to live a totally unrestrained life. Debt, 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 borrow, borrow, credit card, credit card, flesh, flesh, materialism, materialism, get what I can get, man. And that's why for me as a Christian, I'm so glad that my entire life isn't wrapped up in the here and the now, that I'm living for something above that and greater than that. And if you want to find out what that is, just go to whoisthissob.com. We'll wrap it up with that. Uh, when you go to whoisthissob.com, I hope you'll leave your comments unfiltered. I just want to have the conversation with you, but you'll see a little navigation button with the word heaven on it. And if you want to understand what uh, that particular worldview is all about, what, it, what it's about with going to heaven, what happens when you die, uh, there's a great video there, some great information that explains those things. And that's why I uh, can engage these topics and look at these various things. And, and I'm heartbroken about what's going on in the here and the now. 
but it's not all that I have to live for. So check that out. That's just the heaven button at whoisthissob.com. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And really, I really would love for you to leave your comments. Let's have that uh, dialogue. Let's go back and forth there. And uh, God willing, we'll talk again real soon. Take care of yourself. Be safe out there. And uh, this is Steve Noble, the host of Who Is This SOB? You can visit us at whoisthissob.com. God willing, I'll talk to you again real soon.